You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Genesis chapter 49. Uh, We have been going verse by verse, chapter through chapter, and here we are, second to last chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, It has been quite some time and quite a journey. And uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, roughly the last 12 weeks, we've been in the story of Joseph or the life of Joseph. And Joseph is a prefigure of King Jesus, meaning that Joseph's life is often pointing us from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament about who Jesus is. Now, Joseph himself is just a man. He's a sinner like you and me, except God used him in mighty ways for the purpose of pointing us as we read the scripture to an understanding of what our savior would be like up to this point in the story to give you a little bit of information about Joseph. He has a dad named Jacob and Jacob. If you've been with us means what heel grabber, deceiver, swindler. Uh, Jacob is all about Jacob and he's lived much of his life being selfish looking for the next business deal that benefits him, manipulating others, using his giftings and his strengths for the purpose of building himself. And then he gets into this wrestling match with God. And God humbles him, gives him a limp, literally reminds him, in order to walk with me, you have to have a humble and broken heart, Jacob. And in that moment, he renames Jacob to be Israel. Israel means governed by God, an entirely different identity. And it doesn't mean Jacob all of a sudden becomes this perfect man. He continues to struggle, but he also grows. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of these sons, his favorite son, which we shouldn't play favorites, but Jacob did one of the areas he needed to learn. But his favorite son, Joseph, is sold into slavery by his own brothers The brothers lie to Jacob and say, hey, he's dead. A wild animal ate him. We don't know what happened. And Jacob thinks he's lost his favorite son, Joseph. But Joseph is sold into slavery in which he ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, he prospers in Potiphar's house, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, the king of Egypt. But he's accused of a sexual crime that he doesn't commit. As a matter of fact, he went the opposite direction. He ran from temptation and yet... The accusation of this man's wife puts him into prison. And there in prison, Joseph excels. As a matter of fact, the prisoner starts to run the prison. And for years, Joseph is in prison wrongfully, but trusting the Lord. And God is faithful to Joseph. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has this dream. And none of his wise men or magicians can interpret it. And someone goes, I know a Hebrew. I know a man in prison who can interpret dreams. And Joseph stands before Pharaoh and goes, it's not me. I don't have the gifting and authority, but God does. Let me tell you what it means, Pharaoh. There are seven years of abundant crops coming. But then there are seven years of a famine that will impact the whole world. And Pharaoh goes, who else has wisdom like this? And he takes Joseph at 30 years old and puts him in second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And Joseph stewards the position and favor that God has given him well. So much so that he harvests so much grain that they can no longer count it. They don't have enough storehouses for it. And as the famine begins to develop, nations from outside of Egypt begin to come asking for food. And who comes asking for food? Joseph's brothers from the land of Canaan. And they don't recognize Joseph. He looks the part of an Egyptian, but Joseph recognizes them. And back and forth, we see Joseph pursuing with both wisdom, discernment, and sometimes hard words for his brothers, not letting them know who he is to see, have these men changed? Are they still all about themselves? 
greed, lies. And yet Joseph pursues their hearts. And we get to this point in the story where the brothers find out that it's Joseph. And they tell their father, Jacob. And Jacob is revived in his old age. And all of Israel, all the family of Jacob, all 70, move into Egypt. And Jacob gets to spend 17 years with his son, Joseph, that they had missed. And now we're at this point where we're looking at the final words, the last words of Jacob. Jacob is on his deathbed. It's literally his last moments. And he gathers his sons together to speak to them for the last time. What will he speak? Last week, we looked at the supernatural power of a father's blessing. The powerful words that come from a dad whose heart is aligned with God's heart. Who doesn't just speak according to his own will. Who doesn't just say whatever he wants to make himself feel good. But instead, a man who speaks according to God's will. That's what you're going to see Jacob do today. He's going to speak, not according to his own will, but according to God's will. And here's why that's so important. Eric, would you do me a favor? Would you make sure Sean uh, gets a seat? We've got seats up here. and Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Good morning, Sean. It's good to see you. <laughs> that's why we added all these extra seats. We got to get people in here. Here's the scene. Literally, Jacob has only a few breaths left. What would you say to your kids if you got the opportunity to know that you were about to take your last breath and your children or the people that you loved or your friends got to be around you? What would you speak to them? What would you say? And here's what I know about myself. I like to say what feels good to me. I often speak out of my emotions. I often speak out of what I think a person should hear or what they deserve to hear. It's easy to speak easy things. It's difficult to speak truth into people's lives, especially when it might hurt their feelings or when it puts my own reputation at risk because they might not like me. We don't enjoy speaking hard things. And yet I would encourage you, when you open up God's word, do you know how much he loves you? Because do you know how he speaks to you? He doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He tells you what? What you need to hear. Even if it means we get mad at him for a little while. Even if it means we want to go the other direction. And God is working through Jacob. It shows us where Jacob's relationship is with the Lord at this point. His heart, mind, and will are aligned with God's, and he is now speaking according to God's will and not his own. How do we, whether we're young, middle-aged, or old, how do we get to that point where we can speak with God's will in mind instead of our own will in mind? Let's look at what Jacob says to his sons. Genesis chapter 49. Are you there? And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. I love what Jacob does in verse two. He includes both his names. This is the last part of his life. This is all he's going to leave his kids with is this blessing. He's going to speak to their inheritance. And he reminds them, sons, I'm your father, Jacob, a man who lived a sinful and selfish life, a man who is far from perfect, a man who could never live up to the standard that God has. And I'm also Israel, redeemed by God, forgiven of my sins, given new life and new hope, even though I didn't deserve it. And God has transformed me into a man who's now pursuing his own heart. Parents, may I encourage you, if you're still in that season of parenting your children, and that means both inside the house and as they grow into adults even, you don't have to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. 
Jesus the Savior is perfect. But we do want to be honest with our children. Son, daughter, I've made these mistakes in my life. I've sinned in this way. I used to live selfishly. And this is how God has redeemed me. Look at what he's doing. What a testimony to leave your children. Knowing that they don't have to be perfect either. But to point them to a savior who is. Amen. Amen. Psalm 19.14 says this. David writes, let the words of my mouth. And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I love that this is where Jacob is. He wants the words of his mouth, the things that he's thinking to be so aligned upon the center of God's will that with every last breath that he has, he's only speaking what God wants him to speak. And if that is something that we can grow into, Imagine the way you would build men and women around you. Imagine the children that would be raised in the body of Christ when you speak God's will instead of just your own. That's what we'll see Jacob doing. So he begins with his firstborn son, Reuben. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. If you thought this was going to be a fluffy morning about daddy talking to the little kids. (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) Jacob speaks rightly to his firstborn. He goes, You're my strength. You're the excellence of dignity. You are the fruit of my youth. Son, because you were the firstborn, you have the greater portion of the inheritance and also a greater responsibility. And you wasted it. You pursued your own flesh. You gave in to your own desires instead of walking in the ways of the Lord. And because of what you have done, What is the consequence that Jacob says? You will not what? You will not excel. Holy smokes. This is the last time Jacob's going to speak to Reuben. How difficult. And yet Jacob's not interested in his own will. He's all about God's will. He's speaking truth. And he's not only speaking truth to Reuben. He's speaking truth that is prophetic. That will be played out throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapters 30 through 35, Moses talks about these 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, it's talked about what these 12 tribes grow into. Later on in Ezekiel, later on in Revelation, these tribes keep getting mentioned. And what Jacob has to say isn't just echoing in the ears of Reuben, the individual. It reverberates into generations to come for each one of the ancestors of these men's tribe. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, we get insight of what Reuben did. He went in to his father's wife, Bilhah, his brother's mother, and he had sexual relations with her. This was abominable in God's sight. Now what we're going to see, like us, every one of these men have sin in their life. But it seems to be that Reuben did not have a repentant heart. There was no restoration or reconciliation with his father. And Jacob says, Reuben, you're as unstable as water. There's no foundation. You do whatever comes into your mind. You're not led by the Lord. You're led by your flesh. Therefore, you will not excel. Why does this matter to us? Because it reminds us of a very profound biblical principle. One that we know but we often forget in our society. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Young men and women in here who are not yet married. But in that dating courting phase. May I encourage you. When you invest in sexual purity. 
when you take the time to walk according to the wisdom of God's ways, you don't go dating unbelievers. Ladies, you find a man who is a spiritual leader and takes the initiative to set boundaries. Men, you don't go after just what's attractive and on the outside, but you find a woman of beauty and godly character on the inside. You will reap what you what? What you sow. I can remember being at SeaWorld and we were, my, my family and I were waiting in line for this water ride where everybody gets completely soaked and it's ridiculous for the rest of the day. And there were these young men and women in front of us. And one of the young ladies was wearing hardly anything. And I had my daughter, Gracelyn, with me. And I said, Gracie, what do you see? <laughs> and, you know, she's like seven at this point. She goes, her tummy is showing. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's not all that's showing. But, yeah, her tummy is showing. And I said, Gracelyn, what else do you see? And she said, all those boys behind her are talking about her and saying things. And you know what happens when we sow seeds of look at me, look at what I have to offer? You reap men who will be of no benefit and blessing to you. Parents. We live in a society today where we have to seriously question who is influencing our children, where they're receiving their education, who can be trusted to invest into our kindergartners all the way through college students. And we have to take serious inventory as parents because what we reap is what we sow. Are you discipling your kids at home? Not just sending them to church, not just sending them to Awana, not just giving them to a youth group. Are you discipling your kids at home? Are you building them? Are you showing them the value of God's ways? Do they see the joy of walking with Jesus through mom and dad, through grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles? Because we reap what we sow. We live in a society where we have to have resources. We have to have money, but we can quickly become all about the 401k that we're building. We can quickly become about the bigger house or the nicer cars, or I have to set my kids college fund up for this. And may I encourage you, those are meant to be tools and instruments in the hand of God, not the tail that wags the dog. It is so important for us to see the gifts that God has given us for what they are. They're gifts. They're not the giver. And when we consider sowing seeds of a heart that pursues Jesus Christ, that when we sin, which we all do, we repent and we get back on track. And remember, saying sorry, repenting isn't just the words. It's doing a 180 and going the other direction away from our sin. And when we sow seeds of a humble heart of repentance, oh, there will be a great reward to reap. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9 on your screen. Let's read this all together, one loud voice. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also reaps. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Next slide. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I love that last part of the verse. Because sometimes we're sowing, we're sowing, we're sowing, and we feel like what? We're not reaping. Where's the benefits? Where's the blessings? Well, first and foremost, we sow knowing that God wants to work in here first before he works out there. Because if it was about material blessings, oh, we would be selling God so short. He wants to build character in us so that we can steward what he wants to give to us. Young men, you want a wife? 
You better have the character to be able to steward one of God's daughters who's going to ask for her back someday and say, what did you do with what I gave you? Wow. I better have my character built before I take on that kind of responsibility. And that's the God that we worship. He wants to do that work in our hearts and minds. He wants to build us into formidable men and women who can steward the blessings of his kingdom for the purpose of his glory. Amen? Amen. Reuben. In 1 Chronicles 5.1, it says about him, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Last week in Genesis 48, we looked at how Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they received the rights of the firstborn. It was taken from Reuben and given to them because of what he did. Reuben would not excel. And Reuben doesn't excel. There's no judge. There's no king. There's no significant figure that is raised up in Israel that comes from the tribe of Reuben. What Jacob says rings true for generations to come. He does not excel. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. Or hundreds. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. And scatter them in Israel. Holy smokes. We're three kids deep. And this is not going well. (laughs) Remember. Jacob is speaking according to whose will? God's will. He speaks of Simeon and Levi. His second and third born. Born of of Leah. And he says some, some intense things about them. He talks about their cruelty. Their anger being out of control. He talks about them killing men and animals for sport. And we remember from Genesis. Bless you. Remember from Genesis. Dina. Their sister was raped. By a man named Shechem. And justice needed to be done. And church family I want you to know. Our God is a God of justice. But because he's a God of justice. There is also a just penalty For certain crimes. He is not unjust in the way he penalizes people. And Simeon and Levi devise a plan. And in the guise of religion. In the guise of saying. Hey if you worship our God. If you get circumcised. That's all he really cares about anyways. uh, Then we'll marry together. We'll, We'll give you our daughters. You give us our daughters. And we'll intermix. And while the men of Shechem are healing. Thinking that they're entering into a peace treaty. With the sons of Jacob. Simeon and Levi go in and murder all of them. They're defenseless. They can't move. They're in so much pain from the circumcision. And then they take their wives and their children as slaves. And God is not honored. And he is not pleased. And this is not who he is. And once again, like Reuben, it seems like Simeon and Levi do not have a repentant heart. They don't make things right with their father. Therefore, Jacob's last words to his sons is you will be divided and scattered among Israel. What do we gather from this? What is so important about what we're learning through Reuben and Simeon and Levi? Well, we know this, that sexual purity and self-control can deeply impact your future. Sexual purity and self-control can deeply impact your future. Not just while you're a young man or young woman, for the entirety of your life. This applies to all of us. And when we think about sexual purity, remember that we are made in the image of God. Therefore, what we do with our bodies, what we do with the thoughts and our hearts and our minds, are literally meant to be a reflection, an image bearer of who God is. And when we choose to act in discord with the nature that he has made us to be in, 
It is a poor reflection on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for Reuben, his sexual impurity leads him to receive a prophecy that he will never excel. For Simeon and Levi, it's their anger, their cruelty, their, their schemes, their wickedness, their lust for vengeance instead of giving it over to the Lord. It causes them to be divided and scattered in Israel. And I want to encourage you, especially for us as men, the thoughts that we have in our head will only stay in our head for so long. If we don't constantly take every thought captive, repent of our sin, even in our thought life, and bring it before the Lord, what we think will eventually come out in how we act. God's desire is for us to walk in purity in this area. Purity in the way that we look at our sisters in Christ. Purity in the way that we build and lead our wife as the daughter of God that she is. Purity for our nieces and our cousins and our daughters so that the cycle that is out in the world of molestation from family members is not happening in the body of Christ. The church should look different and God gives us what we need through the power of his spirit and the truth of his word to know what is right. And when a church body for an entire generation walks with the Lord, it will be imperfect, but with repentant hearts, an entire generation walking with Jesus, you know what that will do? It will disciple the next generation, which is not happening in the American church as a whole. And then from generation to generation, wow, that's what the future could look like. This is God's desire. This is at the center of his will. This is what he wants to build in his church. And with self-control, it's easy to go to work and your boss is driving you nuts or you have the worst coworker ever. And it's easy to speak words that just tear somebody down. Whether they're present or not, it doesn't matter. But in self-control, you can become a builder of men and women instead of someone who tears their house down. You can be the one person in their life that deals with the difficult person in love. Remember what I said at the beginning in John 13, 1. You imagine how difficult it was for Jesus to sit at that last supper, knowing everything that was about to transpire. That men like Peter who meant well, but said things like, I would never leave you. And then he's denying you three times. And yet about God's heart, it said, he loved them to the end. Wow. Be encouraged. Every one of you, no matter where you come from, what you've done, what's been done to you, you have a Savior who will love you to the end. Will you love him back? Will you respond to his love with which he first loved you? This is all God asked of Reuben, of Simeon, and of Levi. And it was rejected. And they paid the price. There is a consequence. Proverbs 27.12 says, A prudent person foresees danger or evil and takes precautions or in other words, goes the other direction. But the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. These three men were the example of simpletons. They knew what was right. They knew what was true. And yet they chose to answer their own flesh anyways and do what they wanted. And because of it, they suffered the consequences. Joshua chapter 19 verses one and nine tell us that Simeon was the third largest tribe and it shrunk down to the smallest and their allotment of land in the promised land actually was with the tribe of Judah because Simeon had grown so small. For Levi, Jacob said, you'll be scattered. You'll be placed in all places in Israel. You won't have your own allotment of land and they didn't. They lived in 48 scattered cities across Israel, and yet there was a moment of redemption for the tribe of Levi. How many of you did men's and women's ministry with us as we went through the book of Exodus? Show of hands. Anybody remember Exodus 32, the golden calf? Things are not good. Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, communing with God for 40 days. The people under Aaron's lack of leadership are literally 
throwing the most debauched party ever, worshiping a golden idol. Moses comes down and God says, who will stand with me? Who will put a stop to this? Who's willing to be an enemy even to their own neighbor for my namesake? And which tribe steps up? The tribe of Levi. And even though they do not receive an allotment of land, even though what Jacob says remains true, they're scattered among all Israel. They become the priests of God's people. You want to talk about a redemption story? Wow. There is no one beyond God's grace. There is no one outside of his ability to provide mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what's been done to you, God can restore and reconcile through his son, Jesus Christ. And the tribe of Levi is a phenomenal example. How many of you are ready to get to the rest of the kids? (laughs) Verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, Each one of the tribes, by the way, you could go into those passages from Deuteronomy and Chronicles and Ezekiel later in Revelation. There's so much to unpack about each tribe, but we're just going to focus on what Jacob is saying to his sons. He speaks to Judah and Judah receives a tremendous blessing. How many of you are not okay with this? How many of you remember Judah? You guys are like, no, I think Judah's great. Remember, that's the line of Jesus. Uh, Who suggested that Joseph be sold for money? Judah. And even worse than that, in Genesis chapter 38, there's this twisted chapter, which was really awkward to preach on 14 weeks ago, in which Judah has a son and his son marries a woman, but his son dies. And it's the father's responsibility to then provide another son for that woman. And so he does, and that son dies. And Judah's like, hey, this woman, she's no good. My kids keep dying. Uh, Just stay celibate for now. I'll I'll give you another kid later on. I'll give you another son later on to marry. And he never does. He doesn't fulfill his responsibility as a father, as a protector and a provider of Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And in his wickedness, He seeks a prostitute. And in those days, there were veils. And he sleeps with a prostitute who happens to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And you want to talk about sexual impurity? Didn't we just cover Reuben and Simeon and Levi? How come come Judah gets a blessing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why does Judah get a blessing? Because there are indications in Judah's life that he was repentant. And that he was a transformed man. And here's where we see that. Judah went from suggesting that they sell Joseph for money. Caring about silver more than his own brother. To putting himself up as surety for Benjamin. When he had gone back to Jacob and said, hey, the man in charge, that was Joseph. They didn't know it. But the man in charge of Egypt and all the food said, we cannot come back and get more food unless we bring our youngest brother, Benjamin. Father, I know he's your favorite. I know you don't want to lose him. I lay my life down for him. If something happens to him, I'll I'll take his place. I I, I deserve the punishment. Do you see the transformation that had happened in Judah? And then later on in that story, Joseph pulls this fast one and puts his cup in Benjamin's grain sack. And it's a way to test the brothers and their loyalty. And if they've actually grown up and changed... And sure enough, there's the cup in Benjamin's sack. They all come back and Joseph goes, all you brothers can go. All of you can go. I keep this one, Benjamin, as a slave. And do you remember who pleads for him? 
Judah steps in and goes, Lord, take me. Send the boy back. It'll bring my father to his grave. Take my life instead. How does that happen? How does that kind of heart transformation take place? There's only one way. Because Judah became a man of God who repented of his sins, who submitted to the Lord's will instead of his will, who owned the error of his ways and his sin and became a man who was willing to lay his life down for his brother. Wow. Do you see Jesus all over this story? And here's what I love. Don't lose sight of the bigger picture because right now we're just in this, this tiny little crevice of Jacob speaking to his sons. We're kind of thinking about the sons. But these are the last words that Jacob is speaking. And as a parent, what is he doing? Who's he pointing his kids to? Wow, to Jesus. You cannot praise your children enough. You cannot say at a boy, at a girl enough to ever equal the power that comes from a father, and this includes mothers, but specifically from a father pointing their kids to Jesus Christ. That's what Jacob is doing. That's what we're called to. No matter how old we get, no matter how many children or not children we have, this is what discipleship looks like. We point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. Jacob isn't pointing to himself one bit. He's speaking truth because he's speaking according to God's will. Just amazing. Uh, there is so much to unpack. And for time's sake, I'll just touch on a couple of these. Um, Judah is likened to a lion. Um, how many of you have sung a song or heard a verse about the lion of Judah? Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, right? Uh, do, says, but one of the elders said to me, this is speaking to John, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Who is this verse about? Jesus. Therefore, here's the blessing of the tribe of Judah. It is the tribe of the Messiah and it is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jacob knew some things that he was saying. And I'm sure there were others that he didn't have full understanding of. And yet God was using him anyways to point us to the Messiah, Jesus. Judah inherits the royal lineage. This is the royal blessing. King David comes from the tribe of Judah. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David receives what's known as the Davidic covenant between him and God in which God says, David, Someone from Israel will always sit on the throne and there is one coming in which the scepter will never be removed, meaning the power, the kingdom, the glory over God's people and the earth will never depart from one of your ancestors. 1600 years after Jacob speaks to Judah, Jesus is born and fulfills the prophecy given to King David and what Jacob speaks to his son that the scepter will not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. I have a friend named Shiloh. He's actually here this morning. I was like, dude, I was reading about you all week. This is so cool. I now know what your name means. Uh, Shiloh means to whom it is or to who it belongs. Shiloh is a messianic reference that the kingdom of God will belong to one and one only. Not a sinful man like King David, but a Messiah who is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what Jacob is saying. When Shiloh comes, the fulfillment of all prophecy. And to him, verse 10, be the obedience of the people. Verses 11 and 12, uh, binding the donkey to the vine and the choice vine, and then dipping the robe or washing the robes in grapes or wine this is most likely referring to the coming kingdom age of affluence when Christ is ruling and reigning for a thousand years on the earth that his blessing will be upon his people, that there will be tremendous affluence in character and in resources used to establish God's kingdom on earth. So a little bit more positive when it comes to Judah, right? 
uh, as we move on, I want to encourage you. We're going to see that Jacob addresses a lot of his sons with either just one or two verses. That doesn't necessarily mean that Jacob loved his sons less or more in these areas. It just means that this is what God chose to spoke through, speak through Jacob. It wasn't about Jacob. And it wasn't even about his sons giving them what they wanted. He was speaking prophetically for what God had called them to become. So verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Uh, if we were looking at a map, we would see that Zebulun actually doesn't border the coast of the Mediterranean, but sits perfectly between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And the tribe of Zebulun became a great trade route for people transferring goods from the Mediterranean Sea into the Promised Land or from the Sea of Galilee into other places. So they do become a people associated with the sea. Zebulun is also a tribe known for its mighty warriors. Several places in the Old Testament, it mentions the men who come from Zebulun and the incredible work that they do in battle. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and he became a band of slaves. Now, this is a, a little bit interesting. Issachar was a large tribe in Israel and uh, was known for being a hardworking tribe. So in our terminology, if we call somebody a donkey or other words, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, in ancient times, a donkey was a very noble animal. Um, it was reliable for carrying heavy packs, and it was also an animal that often carried kings. And so Issachar is receiving a blessing of, hey, you're a hardworking man. You're someone who puts his hand to the plow. But unfortunately, because they were so hardworking and they were a large tribe, they also enjoyed rest. They got complacent and it made it easy for foreign nations to come in and subdue them and put them into slavery. It is incredible to see the history of each one of these tribes and then to go back and see what Jacob says about them and how they align. That could only be done through God's foresight, his foreknowledge, his will being spoken through Jacob. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider shall fall backward. Um, some interesting things about Dan. Uh, Dan produced one of the most well-known judges in Israel's history. Who did Dan produce? Big, strong guy. Samson. Uh, Samson was a judge of his people. He was as immoral as all get out and a wild card for sure. But God used him as a mighty judge of Israel. He comes from the tribe of Dan. Jacob also describes Dan as a serpent or a viper. Now, when we think in terms of the overall scriptural context about snakes... Uh, good or bad in the Bible? Bad, right? Um, most likely, Jacob is referring to the fact that, unfortunately, the tribe of Dan became the center and introducer of idolatry into all of Israel. As a matter of fact, when the nation divides after King Solomon and King Jeroboam is king, he sets up a golden calf in Dan for people to come and worship, and much of Israel is led astray. They stop worshiping the living God, and it causes them to fall backwards. As Jacob says, just like the rider falls backwards on the horse. Um, isn't this interesting? That's just amazing to me. After Dan, verse 18, I believe, stands alone. I don't think it's meant to be coupled with Dan. It is kind of there in our sections for our Bible. But listen to what verse 18 says. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now remember, who's speaking? And what is going on in his life at this moment? He's dying. Every breath, every word is drawing him more near to his last one. And it's almost as if he takes a rest from talking to his sons. He says this. 
I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Or if we were to read one Hebrew word into it, the word for salvation is, I have waited for your Yeshua, O Lord. In the middle of talking to his sons, he reminds himself, God, I have been waiting for your salvation. And that Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. And Yeshua is another name for Jesus. Crying out for Jesus with his last breaths. But in a way that there is certainty and hope and assurance that salvation is his. Not because of what he's done in his life, but because of the mighty hand of God in which we will see the incredible titles that he has for God in just a moment. Verse 19, Gad, a troop. Gad literally means troop. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Um, Gad settled on the east side of the Jordan, which means they were easily separated from the rest of the tribes of Israel, which means they were easily attacked and won over. Uh, The really cool thing about Gad is What Jacob speaks to Gad is, hey, you're going to lose battles. It's going to feel like you have no victory. But don't worry, God will triumph in the end. And what an encouragement to each one of us. Uh, You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you feel like, man, I just feel like I can't win a battle. feel like I keep losing. feel like our country keeps losing, our community keeps losing, whatever it is. Oh, no, do not be discouraged. For Christ has victory, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. It's set in stone. And for the tribe of Gad, what an encouragement to them, even in their losses, knowing that it would not be their end. After Gad comes verse 20, Asher. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. This one's funny to me. All the sons are getting all these good and bad blessings. They're like, you're going to be royal chefs. Ha ha. How does that help the kingdom? Then how many of you have had good food versus bad food? Um, Asher is a rich and fertile land. Their tribal allotment had some incredible crops. And out of Asher came food fit for kings. Um, What Jacob speaks is true down to the allotment of land that they get in the promised land. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Um, Naphtali and Zebulun are both referred to when you look at a map as the area of Galilee of the Gentiles. And in both the Old and New Testament, it talks about how light has come to the Galilee of the Gentiles because who comes? Jesus. And he speaks in beautiful words, in teaching and authority that no man has ever heard before. This will take place in the land of Naphtali. And then from Naphtali, we get to Joseph. And it's understandable that Jacob has quite a bit more to say about Joseph. So we'll read the blessing that Jacob says about Joseph and then unpack it. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a well. Uh, In other words, like a vine stocked with the richest fruit. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. Who are the archers? His brothers. Jacob is literally doing a summary of Joseph's life in a very short time. But his bow, meaning Joseph's bow, remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong, which means Joseph's character didn't falter. It remained firm. But here's the best part, and don't miss this. It has nothing to do with Joseph, and it never did. It has everything to do with who? With God or with Christ in him. Sometimes I think we sit here, we listen to heroes of the faith, or we see these amazing figures like Joseph or King David. We're like, yeah, that's them, not me. It was never about them anyways. It's always been about Christ in us. The only reason Joseph could maintain his character, the only reason why he remained faithful to God, the only reason he could interpret dreams and could endure the persecution of his own brethren was because God gave him the strength to do it. It had nothing to do with him. He wasn't better than any one of us. 
But he did respond to God's love. He did have a humble heart and endure hardship, trusting in the covenant promises of the Lord. Verse 24, I'll read it again. But his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong. And then Jacob gives five titles for God. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph. And on the crown of his head. Excuse me. On the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. A lot to unpack there. And for time's sake, I want to go through these five titles for God. I love that Jacob tells Joseph, the mighty God of Jacob. It's not the mighty God of Abraham, even though that would be true. It's not the mighty God of my ancestors, even though that would be true. Jacob has ownership in this. It's personal. The mighty God of of me, son, my God, the one who's provided for me when I didn't deserve to be provided for. The one who's protected me when certainly I didn't deserve to be protected. The one who's blessed me to be with all of my sons at the end of my days when certainly I didn't deserve to have a life of abundance like this. He makes it personal. And I want to encourage you to think deeply about this. For each one of you sitting here this morning, can you say, I am so thankful for the mighty God of Jeff, the mighty, the mighty God of Christine, the mighty God of JC. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Not just do you know that there's a God or that you come to church on Sunday. Do you have a personal walk with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Is he your God? Jacob then tells Joseph, he's the shepherd. Um, what was Jacob by trade? Not a trick question. He was a shepherd. Except he never figured out an important truth until later in his life that he was a sheep. He always thought he was the man, which is why he's always manipulating and conniving and scheming and trying to build his flocks for his own benefit. And he's pulling the wool over his father's eyes and over Uncle Laban's eyes. And finally, when God gets a hold of him and that wrestling match occurs, he recognizes, oh, you are the shepherd and I I'm your servant. I am a sheep. I have to learn to be a follower before I can become a leader of anybody. And our world teaches us the opposite. We must be a follower of Jesus Christ well before we can be leading men and women to an abundant life found in the truth of God's word, the shepherd. Jacob calls him the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel, meaning the rock, the one who's never shifted or changed over time, even though Jacob's life was tumultuous and all over the place. He could always count on God. Ephesians 2.19, Acts 4, Psalm 118, all talk about Jesus as the cornerstone or the stone in Israel, the one that the builders rejected. And yet those who place their life on the stone of Israel, the rock, they will be saved. He calls him the God of your father and then says, your helper. He's making sure Joseph knows, Joseph, my God is your God. And just as he helped me, he will help you. And this is true. When we look at the line of Ephraim and Manasseh, they prosper tremendously in Israel. They grow to be mighty and in number. Finally, the last one is the almighty. Um, I love this one because it's simple, but it's true. What are you facing in your life that you're like, I'm not even sure God can do this one? Is it a broken relationship? Is it walking away from sin that just keeps creeping back into your life? We worship the almighty God who is capable of doing far more than we can imagine or ask for. He is the almighty This is the blessing upon Joseph. 
And then to the last child, verse 27, Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey. And at night, he shall divide the spoil. And that's all Benjamin gets. Uh, Here's what we know about the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, They were fierce warriors. And some fierce men came out of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Men like Ehud, King Saul, Abner, Sheba, Shimei, and also the Apostle Paul. Some fierce in bad ways. Others fierce for God. And I love Christian. Don't miss this. You don't have to be a softie to be a follower of Jesus. You can be a fierce follower of Jesus Christ. Fierce does not mean mean. Fierce does not mean we attack others. Fierce means jealous for God in the way that we don't want anything coming between him and us. Fierce in the way that you pray for your family members who are not saved. Fierce in the way that you protect your children from the sin of this world. Fierce in the way you guard your own heart and mind as you subject yourself to the will of God and his word. Oh, I love that. Fierceness for Christ. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. And he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Jacob speaks rightly. Every one of these tribes, both in the goodness and the badness, all receive an inheritance in the promised land, meaning they're part of the promised land. None of their tribes cease to exist, even though some grow smaller or some grow stronger. And Jacob speaks words of life to his sons, which would have been so important because don't think for one moment that in that 400 years later when they're slaves in Egypt to a wicked and oppressive king, Pharaoh, that they go, God, I'm pretty sure you forgot us. And God goes, read my word. And I promise I haven't. What I say is going to come to pass will come to pass. And does it? In a way that we couldn't even fathom. Because he is the almighty God. Verse 29. We'll finish with these few verses. Then he, meaning Jacob, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. Where is this, by the way? Is it in Egypt? Where is it? In the promised land, in the land of Canaan. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field in the cave, that is, there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Wow. Two things I want to leave you with. Rest is found in the covenant promises of God. Where did Jacob find his rest? Where did he want to be buried? In Egypt with a grand procession and a pyramid built over his tomb, which he probably could have because Joseph was second in command and Pharaoh loved Joseph at that time. Could have had a killer funeral, killer monument. And Jacob says, no way. I cling to nothing in this world but the promises of God. Take me back. Rest is found in the covenant promises of God. If you find yourself weary, if you find yourself discouraged, If you find yourself in circumstances where you're like, I don't know how you're going to work, God, go back to his word and cling to the promises that he has for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Even if you don't feel it, that doesn't make it not true because it's in God's word. Therefore, it is true. And finally, he set such a tremendous example for his sons. Because he taught them with his last breaths that life is found in an eternal relationship with Jesus or with God. Because Jacob wants to be buried with his ancestors because his ancestors are dead or alive. Wow. Let me be gathered to my people. Not a bunch of dead people. 
a bunch of people who are alive and whole in Jesus Christ right now. That's where life is found. That's what Jacob does with his dying breaths is he points all 12 of his sons, those who are listening and those who aren't, he points them back to Jesus, the greatest gift a father can give his children. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.